Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs think that the value of their company is driven by the industry they're in, right? So they look at publicly traded companies and say, well, because XYZ publicly traded company is trading for whatever, 12 times earnings, we should be trading for something similar. And maybe you go to an industry event and you find out that companies in your industry are trading for a certain multiple. However, what we find when we look at the data, and now we've gone through more than 20,000 business owners, we find something very different plays out. We've seen companies in the same industry trade at half the industry multiple because they've got some serious flaws in the business. And we've also seen companies that trade at 2 and 3x the industry multiple because they've structured it differently, approached the selling of their company and the valuing of their company through the lens of these eight factors that acquirers care about. And so to look at your business through the same lens, um, I want you to take 15 minutes and complete the value builder questionnaire. You're going to get a score and the score relates to how valuable your business would be in the eyes of an acquired. It's going to help you think through your business in a different way. Go to valuebuildersystem.com. So lots of little insight bombs in this interview with Jeff Hoffman of Competitive Technologies. So Jeff built a great business, grew it from $5.8 million to $12 million at one point, got it acquired by American Express. What was really interested in and what I want you to listen for are some of the negotiation, you know, chess moves that Jeff made to try to increase the price. And when the deal started to go sideways and American Express introduced the idea of an earnout, Hoffman actually walked away from the negotiation table. Lots of sort of chess maneuvering in this interview. I want you to listen for the way Hoffman played it out. Uh, without further ado, Jeff Hoffman. Jeff Hoffman, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very, very much for having me. Now, you've had an amazing experience on the co-founding team at Priceline and just an incredible entrepreneurial background. But today, we're really going to dig into this company, Competitive Technologies. Tell me a little bit about what you guys did there. So we were one of the first, at the time, we were one of the first really business intelligence companies in the travel industry, focused on really large corporate accounts. Major corporations spend millions on business travel every year, and we were building a suite of products to help them manage and reduce those expenses. Got it, and so was this something that you founded from the beginning, you were thinking of selling, or was this an idea that sort of evolved over time? You know, at the very beginning, I wouldn't say we were thinking of selling uh, because our focus, and by the way, this is one of the most important points I can share today that I learned, is that early on, don't focus on exit, focus on entrance. You have nothing to sell anyway until you create excellent products and services. So we didn't really think about selling the company. What we thought about was let's build the best products and services in our industry. And once we did that and started literally winning awards, then it occurred to me that we now had a sellable asset. So what was the business model? Let's say I'm, I'm Ford or Procter & Gamble and I spend a truckload on, on travel. How would I use your service? So we had built something then at the time um, that uh, analyzed all of your travel patterns and history, but also analyzed all of your book travel. Uh, we cut deals with the back ends of the airline and the reservation system that we could see all the travel you were planning and booking and reserving. Look at trends, look at fares, look at fare types, look at hotel deals and inventory, and we could literally help you replan 
and rebook travel to save millions of dollars off of annual travel budgets, all done with data intelligence. And so did companies subscribe to this or how, what was the, how what was the economic model? Actually, as a small company, how do you get a big company? One of my first customers was Exxon, who bought at the time $40 million a year worth of airline tickets alone. I was pretty sure I could turn that into $35 million. That's a pretty good savings, but I'm a little company. And they said, we're Exxon, who are you? Some little startup with a dozen employees? Why on earth would we trust you guys? So I couldn't get them to sign up and pay. What I did was I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do the whole thing free. Give me one department, a pilot program of your company. You pay me nothing, but if I save you the money I said I would save you, give me a percentage of the savings. And they said, what do we got to lose? Let's give it a shot. So we did a pilot, saved them a lot of money, took a percentage. Then they would tell other big corporations, look, this big company, trust my little company and call them. They'll give you a good reference. And then we were off to the races. Fantastic. Did you eventually evolve that pricing model, Jeff, so that you were billing sort of by the project or on a contract, or was it always a percentage of the savings? Well, here's the thing. We added ancillary and complementary services. So as we added other services, like these quality control function that reviewed everybody's travel plans just to make sure there were no mistakes, things like, for example, I booked uh, my flight for Wednesday, but I booked the rental car accidentally to pick up Thursday. So you're going to have an executive land there, and he has no rental car reservation because it was the wrong day. So that's an example of an ancillary product we built adjacent to our existing products that, that were all on a monthly subscription model. Got it. And so walk us through the evolution. I mean, how did it evolve in terms of revenue, number of employees? And by the time you got uh, the idea of selling, I mean, what were you up to in terms of a run rate? Well, we, we grew, let's see, that last year, it was not huge. I think we went, by year two, we were at about 5.8 million in sales. And by year three, I think it was about 12 million in sales. And after that is when, so we were shooting for 20, but we weren't there. We had surpassed $12 million in sales, but we'd gone from like, you know, zero to five to 12 over a few year period. Um, and so we were growing at a good, that's a, you know, obviously great growth rate, which is easier to do in the beginning, but still not every startup does that. So we were growing fast and healthy and we were getting a lot of good reference clients. Customers were saying, this is a great service and we look, it's a value and we don't mind paying for it at all. Um, so we had a, a significant month over month, quarter over quarter, and year over year growth rate during that three-year period. I mean, people listening to this are going to go 5.8 to 12 in a year. I mean, you didn't get whiplash from that. I mean, what, what was that like to go through that hyper growth in, in a single year? I mean, how did that feel? What were some of the implications of that growth? You know, that's an, uh, John, I'm really glad you asked that. That's a great question because the piece that I underestimated was not whether or not we could sell and get customers. I was optimistic because we had really good products, but talent. It turns out that financing, when you ask small businesses, you ask people, what do you think small businesses need most to grow and to scale? And people will typically tell you funding. It's not funding. Money's not the scarcest resource. Talent is. What I could not find was a steady stream of A players. The reason our company was growing that rate was because I just had the best people. I had really talented designers, developers, account managers, salespeople. I had a small company with extremely good talent. And as it started to grow to support that growth, it was harder and harder to find all-stars. And I just underestimated the fact that when you grow your company on the backs of really good people, as you get bigger, 
it's harder and harder to find A players in a bigger company. That was my biggest challenge in positioning this company to prove that I could scale so that somebody would acquire it was to convince them that I could keep my talent level up. What is the best question you ask in a job interview th that helps illustrate whether someone's going to be an A player or not? Oh, John, another great question, because it's not the resume and it's not the job description, which I thought at first. I would give, read them the job that I needed them to do, the job description, and ask them about their experience and qualification for doing that. But I'll tell you something I learned later in looking back. By the way, when we sold that company, I know we'll get to that, but when we sold that company, I was doing a TV interview, and the reporter said to me, Jeff, the company has great accomplishments. She was reading our sales growth, our revenues, our profits, our margins. And she said, which accomplishment are you most proud of? And I'm going to tell you something, John, that looking back was why this company had a great exit, was my, uh, the woman that ran HR for me during those years called me and said, Jeff, you're going to be, I was on the way to the TV station for the interview. She said, check this out. This will blow you away. She said, in the years since the day you started the company to the day you sold it, not one person that worked here ever quit. Now, we released, we, we fired some non-performers, but nobody ever left during all that time. So the reason for that was that we were, re well, I asked, I started calling people, said, how come you guys never quit? And they said, Jeff, is this a problem? Do you want us to quit? I said, no, I'm trying to learn something. Because clearly we stumbled into something good. We built a company where the best people all wanted to work and nobody wanted to leave. That's the lesson learned. Next time I wanted to do it on purpose, and it turned out to get all the way back to your question on the best interview question, employees started telling me, it's because you never started an interview with the job description and the qualifications. And what I always did was I asked people, tell me one thing you absolutely have to do before your life is over. So I can get a sense of who you are as a person. It was the cultural fit, not the resume fit. I would ask everybody, just tell me something. One young man said to me, my, I grew up poor in an Airstream trailer with holes in it in winter with only my mom and my sister. He said, before I die, I will buy my mother a house in Florida to live in the rest of her life fully paid. That told me a lot about who he was as a human. His resume will never tell me that. So we were culturally, the question I asked in the interview about, tell me some important thing you must do with your life, and in parentheses, let me see how I can help you do that, is the reason that the best people wanted to work at our company. Love it, love it. So this company is growing. Uh, eventually, there's a triggering event that makes you think you might want to sell it. Tell us about what triggered the, the sale. Absolutely. So the, the first triggering events are when you're a small company and you're competing against big brand name companies <laughs> and you win the first time. Right? It's ironic because we were there boldly saying, look, we're, our product is just as good as these huge companies. In fact, our product is better and our service will be better because you mean more to us than you do to this big company. So we're confidently giving our sales pitch. And then they call us and say, you won. And I had to hit the mute button and say, wait, what? You picked us? Um, even though I was pitching it with confidence, I was shocked when we won. But then we started to win more than one. We started to beat the big name brand players in our industry, and that's when it occurred to me, we have an asset that's valuable. If our products and services can beat the big guys, the 800-pound gorillas in the field, they're pretty soon going to say, we lost to who? And they're going to start poking around to see who I am. That was the day I realized, hey, wait a minute, that might make me an acquisition target. And so did you get a call from one of these losing bidders? 
we did, we got some nice fake calls, right? So what they did was they had friends, right? Because everybody has friends in every business. If you have an account that you've been the account manager or salesperson of for years and they're friendly with you and your contract's coming up and even though you know you're going to get the contract again, what they did was they convinced some customers to call us and say, hey, our contract expires this year. We're going to do an RFP. We've been hearing a lot about your company. Tell us all about your products from the inside out. And I was sitting there thinking, they're never going to give us this bid. They're, they're the, the competitors on the phone, on mute, listening to this conversation. So the first calls, they were trying to find out what our secret sauce is. And they were having other people call, but they were kind of transparent. But I started to realize that I'm going to answer those questions anyway, because our products actually are the best products in the market. And if they could have duplicated us or beat us, they would have done it already instead of losing accounts to us. So they started calling, and then they got bolder, uh, where they, would, they did start to call and say, hey, some of our clients seem to be interested in your products. Could you tell us more, and maybe we could do some kind of licensing deal? Those were the first sort of queries that I got. And where did it go from there? Um, you know, when, when I finally said, guys, let's not, let's not beat around the bush. If that's your interest, then just tell me that. And, I, and so they said, we want to license your products. So I sat down, hung up the phone, and thought, well, that's very flattering that the big player, uh, you know, in our case, that was uh, American Express. It's a public transaction, so I can say so. Um, it was American Express was the 800-pound gorilla. They called and said, uh, we just love your products. And your, our customers were losing bids because our customers want your products, not ours. And I thought to myself, you have infinite resources relative to me and infinite employees. How is it you're not building, how can you not beat me in the marketplace? And it turned out we just really were better. Because we were small, we were fast and efficient and responsive. So our products moved faster, listened to the customer better, and we just had really good products. So but they said, we want to license your products. And I sat down and thought, well, that's really flattering. And first I was excited. The next minute I was terrified because what I realized was if I license my product to the 800-pound gorilla, I can close my doors tomorrow because I'll never win another bid. Why would anybody do business with me if they could do business with the confidence and, you know, and staff and budgets of the big guy? The only reason I was winning was because my products were better. So I actually, even though they were willing to pay a lot of money for a license, I actually had to go back and say no thanks. And that was a hard decision. Were there other folks at the table? I don't know the travel industry, the corporate travel industry very well. Who's the next biggest competitor to uh, yeah. Amex? So at the time, I don't know who's the biggest now, but uh, Carlson Wagon Lee was one of the world's biggest travel companies. Um, there were different ones, um, there, you know, overseas as well. Uh, but those were some of the big ones. There was, um, ah, I've now forgotten, and Thomas Cook over in England. So these are huge travel companies that make millions of dollars serving corporate travel needs all over the planet. So all of them started calling, but American Express was the aggressive one. Got it. And so where did it, when did it go from a license deal to an acquisition? Um, in the discussions, when we said no, they tried again with a more lucrative license deal. But, you know, I was saying that difference in money is literally the end of my company. So licensing your products to competitors uh, unless it's, you know, an unbelievable, it just didn't make sense. So I, after we said no a couple times, then they came back again and they said, tell you what then. They said, you know, maybe, maybe we'll look at acquiring the company. And I had kind of almost flippantly in some conversations, we had said, look, if you're really that interested, just buy the company. Because if we sell the, 
if we license the products, we're out of business anyway. We can't compete with you. So if you really want this, just buy us out and, and buy the company. We said that a few times, and then one day they came back and said, okay, we're considering it. And what was your reaction? Well, I got to tell you some things that I uh, did then uh, that, uh, you know, uh, might have been just lucky guesses, but they work. So here's an example for anybody who's, who's got a possibility now to get your, uh, your company acquired when someone's sniffing around. The first thing you got to do is stoke the competitive fire. You want a bidding war. So I said things like, you know what? I said, let me talk to Thomas Cook. Let me talk to Carlson. Let me talk to all your competitors. I didn't say that. I just said the other big players. But they react strongly to competition. I said, before I'm going to just take an offer from you, I'm going I'm to offer the company to everybody. And let's see who's interested and more interested in you. So stoking their competitive fire, they started immediately increasing the offer. Because they said, man, we don't want to get in a bidding war and we don't want our competitors to buy this company. So we need to close this deal fast. So the first thing I did was start mentioning, making calls to other people that I would have never called before and said, hey, look, one of your competitors is calling and asking me about buying my company. Before I sell it to anyone, I wanted you to have a chance to look at it too. So now the interest is up, the competition's up, and the deal is going up. The other thing I did was position myself very strategically. So I'm going to give you an example. There was a trade show that I was not planning to go to, a big industry trade show. But once the big, once American Express was sniffing around the company, I not only decided to go to the trade show, but I'll tell you what I did. I wanted the booth on the same row across from them. This may sound silly, um, but uh, you know, you do what you can uh, to increase your value on the market. So I called the company who I did not know who had the booth on the same row as American Express. And I said, look, I'll pay for your booth if you switch with me. I'm three rows over. So they switched. So now my little company was at the same trade show on the same row as the company thinking of, of buying us. Um, and so we were right in their face visible. Then I invited every customer possible to come by the booth. But then I also invited all my friends. I told everybody, stop by and see us if you're in town. So here's what happened. I'm on the same row as my competitor at a show I wasn't thinking of going to. And guess what, John? My booth is crowded all the time. Some of them were just friends of mine saying hello. But I could see across the way American Express saying, man, look at the traffic they get. Everybody loves that company. They're never, there's never an empty moment in that booth. They must really have something. All those things later, after they acquired the company, they told me influence them. Isn't that wild? <laughs> I love it. It's the, it's the little tactics, right? And a lot of people listening to this will say, well, how am I going to do that? Think about the trade associations in your industry. Think about the opportunities you might have to speak or sit on a board or be part of the conversation because that's what gives acquirers in your industry knowledge of you and, and makes them aware of you as, as being a part of the, the kind of industry um, inc ecosystem, to use that overused word. You, you were uh, inserting yourself in the conversation in a very entrepreneurial way. <laughs> Yes, go ask for speaking requirements, pay, um, speaking opportunities, pay for them. I went and spoke at events that I wasn't planning to because I knew they'd be in attendance. So you've got these three bidders and you're ginning up the price. You've got Amex, uh, Carlson, Tom, Thomas uh, Cook. Uh, at what point, did you hire an M&A uh, advisor at all? Did you have somebody representing you or are you negotiating Not this yourself? Not immediately, but then the, the, they started to get serious and started to discuss 
it seemed like they really were going to make an acquisition officer offer. So then guess what? That, that, ama that crazy thing called valuation comes up. And by the way, this is what I've concluded now that I spent all my time working with start small business owners and entrepreneurs, and everybody asked me the secret to valuation. You know what the secret is? Nobody else knows either. <laughs> Nobody has any idea what their company is worth. In the end, it's whatever you could get for it. So you got to take a stab. And the best thing you can do, asset-based doesn't do a lot if your company's intellectual property. Right? If I'm in manufacturing, I've got trucks and machines and warehouses and inventory. That's easier to value. But if you're in IP kind of things like technology, um, where you have algorithms and software, it's much harder to value. Um, so what you want to do is look at comparables. Who else sold a company like yours and what did they get for it? So you can base your argument on something. I had no, how to, no idea how to do that. So at that time, yes, we hired an outside consulting firm and said, can you give us a valuation and an argument for that valuation so we can go back to them and tell them this is our minimum price? And was that outside consulting firm to represent you in these negotiations or was it just feeding you the ammunition to represent yourself? So that firm, we just paid them uh, to, I think it was Bain, by the way, Bain Consulting. We paid them just to give us ammo. Arm us because we're, we're, we don't know what we're doing. We've never done an acquisition like this before. They're a public company. What rules do we have to follow? What are they likely to say? How do we respond? What are some good numbers that, that you know, we don't get cheated e either way? We don't ask for too little. We don't ask for too much and kill it. They were paid to educate and arm us, but they were not the negotiators. We actually did that with a law firm that had an M&A department, which, by the way, was for my little, uh, you know, for our little company, that was expensive. What'd you pay because for legals? Um, I don't remember the number, but I remember it wound up being very expensive. Uh, and in fact, it's so expensive that we couldn't pay for it and we had to make part of it uh, success-based, meaning we'll pay you this much. Uh, and so a little variable thing. Once the deal gets done, We'll do a sort of, little sort of a variable kicker based on what we get so that they were willing to take. Here's the point. Normally with attorneys and fees like firms like that, they want all their money up, you know, up front or soon. And what we said was we don't have it, um, all of that. It's expensive, so we'll do a deal. We'll pay part of the legal fees now uh, for this M&A negotiation, and then part of it we'll do based on what we get so that if you really help us cut a good deal, we'll pay you when we get the money from the acquisition, but we'll pay you more than you would have been paid if you just took all your money now, and they agreed to that. So they were incented to help us get the best possible price. Got it. And so what was Bain saying in their report back to you the company was worth? What were the ranges they were giving you? Um, you know what? Now I can't remember numbers. Um, we wound up uh, folding... So we had investors, by the way, um, in our company that owned a travel agency. Um, so I had my technology company. My number one investor had a travel agency company. Uh, and we folded those together in the end. So the numbers, you know, it was a nine-digit number in the hundreds of millions of dollar range. But uh, we uh, rolled the two companies together. So part of, part of the valuation was for each company in the end. I just, it was long, far enough ago that I don't remember the exact split of those numbers then. So you rolled both competitive uh, t technologies, your company, along with the company of your largest investor yes. together uh, into one acquisition. Right. And then we just split, you know, the consultants help us say each company is worth X amount out of this total and they just prepared the logic but again you know the truth of valuation is clearly there's you know you, you start with the formula that says the argument by the way 
and I'm sure people know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The argument you have as a business owner. So now when I'm sitting and talking to these M&A people, not on our side, on the other side, that want to buy the company, here's what I'm saying. We have a profitable company. We're growing every single year. We'll probably keep going for 10 years. Does anybody, can anybody prove that? No, but our track record year over year has shown that I'm probably right. We are growing. We have a track record. That's an important piece. So when I make the argument that we're going to continue to grow year after year, I can substantiate it with our historical performance. So now here's what you're saying as a business owner. If you buy the company from me, the, the formula that you do, which is what the consultant taught, taught us, is do a projection on your own. Don't wait for the acquirer to ask. Do a projection that says, here's how much money we as owners think we would be making as personally and as a business for the next 10 years. So if you're going to buy our company, you're not buying today's value. You're buying my whole future because I'll be out of the business tomorrow and all those 10 years worth of great value and money I would have made are gone. So we did a, a, a chart saying how much money we expect to make over 10 years as a business and as the shareholders, as the personal owners of the business, and we gave that to them and said, if you're taking away the company, you're taking away our entire future, so you need to buy all of that. So when people talk about those multiples, right, multiples of earnings that companies get, it's more formulaic today after internet companies and internet stocks, but for private companies that you're selling, uh, that multiple of earnings has a lot to do with how, the argument you can place on how many years you're going to keep growing and how much money you're going to make in all those years after they take the company from you. We pitched that argument to them. It's called discounted cash flow methodology, guys. And, and if you're listening to this and you want to Google that, you can, you can see how Jeff would have projected out 10 years in the future and then discounted that uh, future stream of profit into today's dollars and, uh, and came up with what obviously was a, a robust offer. Jeff, how did you talk about and, and think about the division between you and your largest shareholder? Because as you've just stated, you know, valuation is a subjective thing, right? It, it's, it's, yes. it's not an objective thing. It is subjective. It's, it's, it, it's open for interpretation. And so at some point you had to sit down with your largest shareholder, the, the other guy on the, you know, on your side of the table who you were selling this company to Amex and say, and draw a line in the sand and say, my company is worth, you know, X percentage of the overall, you know, nine figure exit. How did you make that estimation? Uh, I, I'm, I'm less interested in, in the mechanics of it, meaning like the Bain consultant said it was worth X, but but more emotionally to the point where you said, yeah, that's a fair price for what I built. So that's a great question as well. And by the way, you were correct uh, what you told them to go Google. In the end, you have to turn that all back into net present value. Uh, and there's formulas that you can research on how to compute net present value based on that discounted cash flow projection. So I had to learn all that stuff uh, so that we could come up with that number. But that's a great question because one of the things that a smart acquirer does is find every, literally, on days that you're in the negotiations sitting in a room, when you take a lunch break, they, they, one of them will wander over to your investor, right? And one of them will wander over to you and they're trying to divide and conquer. What they're trying to do is get everybody's expectations down and try to convince your other shareholders that a lower number is still good and Jeff's just being greedy. So I noticed all these dynamics where I started saying, in no case do you even go to the restroom at the same time as these people. We need to stay together because they're smart enough to say, man, come on, take our first offer. That's plenty of money. What are you guys holding out for? Jeff's just being greedy. So what I realized was partway through it, I suddenly got worried if all my team was on the same page. So we actually called a halt in the negotiations, got our whole team together off site and, and said, 
everybody, we had a whiteboard. Everybody go up to the right board, whiteboard and write down your real true minimum. What, for your effort and contribution and risk to this company, what would you personally take? What is your minimum number that each of you would take? And of course, it's pro rata to your shareholder percentage. Um, but what is your, the minimum number that you would take that you would walk out of here and say, I'm glad we did this deal. It's a good deal. And everybody put those numbers down. And then we kind of use that to aggregate a minimum number that we had in our heads that we said, everybody agrees we're not going below this number. But if we got only this number, we'll all go home happy. We hadn't done that at the beginning. And they were trying to divide and conquer us a little bit. Once we did that, we were a unified front. And we, we stuck to our numbers. Tell me more about the whiteboard session, because some people would have probably put a really inflated number on the whiteboard with no relation to what the company was worth, more what they wanted or needed to retire, whatever. I mean, how would, how did you kind of work through those conversations and say, well, how did you, how did you come up with that number? I'm sure that that was a contentious conversation. So it, oh, it was unbelievable. We've been, we'd been such great partners doing business together all these years. And it turned into this shouting match that I was sitting there. This is surreal. This is success, what we worked for, and everybody's yelling at each other. So you're right. It, it came to this moment I never anticipated because the argument is one person is saying, are you nuts? That's an unrealistic number. So I'll tell you how we resolved it. When we got to that point where, where we had a very contentious meeting and we weren't reaching agreement, we went back to our M&A consultants that we paid uh, at, that were negotiating the deal. And we asked somebody from that firm to come in and set our expectation. And he had to do that with data. He said, look, here's a list of the last two years. In the 24 months, here's all the acquisition deals we closed that we did. And here's the size of each of these acquirers and, you know, and acquired companies. And here's what the deal went for. And here was the deal logic. And so what they did was we said in the end, so tell us what we can honestly, even though no one really knows till the deal closes, tell us what we can expect based on all your experience because you have a lot. So I think he showed us 20 previous deals in, in the industry. And said, if you average the ones that are similar in size to you and, you know, and could make the same argument for your growth rate or whatever, here's the range. These people got between X and Y. So you shouldn't expect, you know, you should expect that midpoint to be a realistic number for you. Then we all came back because what he said was, if you guys keep pushing the high thing and just saying, let's just give them a really high number and hope what we get. He said, there's a chance they walk. You don't want to lose the deal because of greed. And we understand that you guys don't walk, want to walk out of here and fill the whole life like you left money on the table. So he eventually resolved the contentious thing by giving us uh, uh, a range of recent actual deals that closed and showed us what we should really be expecting. Because it's easy to try to overplay your hand or to overplay your hand, not try to overplay. It's easy to overplay your hand in a negotiation, uh, you know, pushing them to a point of saying, you know what, guys, we'll build it on our own. If you really think you've got something that we can't replicate with all, as you said, Jeff, all of American Express's resources, you've got to be kidding. Was that part of the conversation in your mind? That Absolutely. And that's the part where I learned a valuable lesson that especially when your acquirer is a larger company, they respond one way to just good business decisions. Acquiring our, our company is a good business decision. That's one argument. But the one they respond to 10 times faster is, you know what, we'll just cut a deal with one of your competitors. They respond with alarming speed when they think a competitor is going to get an edge up. If they think they're, only one, they're the only ones and they're just discussing adding new products and services by acquiring you, 
that argument, they were saying, ah, we don't know if it's worth that. When we started saying, you know what, guys, and let's just call this off because we've got interest from your competitors and we'll go sell to them, that changed the tone. It's a chicken, and, you know, it's a game of chicken, right? Um, so you do want to be calling competitors and saying, by the way, they get interested when they find out one of their competitors is looking at buying you, even if they told you no before. So you got to keep throwing gas on the competitive fire. So that was one thing that helped us. But I'll tell you the other one because I didn't know this then. And my, my big shareholder was also one of my business mentors. He was a lot more experienced than I was in business. He's the one that told me the leverage principle. He said that in business, negotiations are all about leverage. And he said, we're a little company. They're a big one. They have all the leverage as this negotiation starts now because we really want, you know, we're seeing stars or dollar signs in our dreams now that they've shown up. He said, the only way you ever have leverage in any business negotiation at all is if the other side actually believes you might walk out. As long as they know, you're never going to leave, right? If you say, you know what, you know what, big company, American Express, forget you guys, we'll forget the deal, we're just going to go back to work. And then you walk out, you know, then at lunch they're laughing and saying, those guys aren't going to leave, they're, they're going to take this deal no matter what. There's no way they go back to work and lose an acquisition opportunity. If they believe that, you have no leverage and you'll wind up taking whatever they give you. What he said was, until and unless they believe you'll walk. So we had a moment where he leaned over and whispered to me, get up and walk out of the room. And I was like, what? He said, get up, go out, follow me to the elevator. We are leaving the building. Say goodbye and good luck and tell them you're never coming back again. I was scared to death, John, because I thought if we do that and, and irritate them, they may say, you know what? Screw you guys. You and your little company. Go. Uh, we'll buy somebody else. And he said, trust me. So I did. And I got up and said, you know what? We're wasting our time. I said exactly what he told me. We're wasting our time. Your offers are too low. You're not raising them enough. We got things to do. We got a profitable company. Good luck. Buy someone else. And we walked out. And I said, now what? On the street. And he said, we go to the hotel. And I, my heart dropped because I just blew an acquisition. And I said, and are we checking out of the hotel? And he said, oh, Jeff, we'll never get to the hotel. <laughs> and I said, why not? And he said, just take your phone out. We walked two blocks and the phone rang. And because they watched us, I guess, out the window, literally leaving and not turning around. And once they thought that we actually would walk this deal and we'd rather just wait for a better offer, then they called us back. And that's when we finally had the breakthrough. <laughs> what a story. Those were, that, that did take courage for sure. You know, I was not happy with this and I was scared to death, but he was right. So you have this negotiation and, and you agree to a price, I, I assume, at some point. Um, you've got to then sign a letter of intent where I'm assuming you gave up negotiating leverage. You promised not to continue to negotiate with Thomas Cook and Carlson. Is that how it happened? That is exactly how it happens. You sign that. And that letter governs a lot of other things. You can't suddenly write because part of the, that net present value is calculated on your cash. So you, your agreement says you can't suddenly go start buying things and spending the money that we thought we're getting. You can't stop returning customer calls because your book of business, your accounts, is part of what we're buying. And if you know the deal's done and you just stop it, you go to the beach now and lose customers. So it, it, it's, the agreement is heavy on how you have to run the business. You have to keep trying to close sales that, you were, that were in the pipeline. You have to service existing customers so you don't lose any. You got to protect the cash. Yes, you sign an agreement that governs what you do until the day the closing happens. What was the most difficult part of, or perhaps the most surprising part of due diligence, you know, between signing the letter of intent 
and and the wire transfer going through you know i think it was a negotiation of a collar which was a word i never even heard before um the the collar what they said was you are showing us your sales forecast and you're claiming that through the rest of this calendar year right and 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 the first year after we acquire this company these contracts will re up with you but you're going to leave right so they said just to make sure you do everything you can to convince your clients on the way out that they should not leave once you leave that they should stay and do business with us we're taking a, a dollar amount of the acquisition price that's the collar we're putting it in an escrow account and you don't get it till a year after the acquisition and if some of the companies leave right after you leave and say you know what we just like doing business with Jeff and his partners and we lose those companies that you told us were solid customers then you don't get the full acquisition price so negotiating the collar was was excruciatingly cruel because we're arguing the certainty of keeping those customers and they're going under the assumption that they'll leave when you leave the business and what proportion of the deal was in the collar I think in the end it was like uh 15%. I think it was less than 20%. Still that's a significant number. And did you also agree to an earn out or some sort of you know goals in the future? No, we were able to get out of that. That's where the deal started and we were able to negotiate most of that away. That's how they normally do their deals, 3-year earn outs. And part of our leverage was we don't want an earn out, just buy the company if you want it. But nobody um, wants an earn out, Jeff. What how did you how did you convince them to not uh, not use an earnout. Um, the only way we convinced them was that we were able to convince them this really had nothing to do with the earnout. This had to do with the timing and value of buying. So here's the argument we put together. By the way, no one told us to do this. We just were trying to think up a way to convince them. We showed them that the product, the products they were buying from us were far superior to any product in the market, and we showed them the lead we thought we had of any competitor starting to build a product now and the truth was the leads never that big so what we were telling them is if they walk this deal and don't acquire our company in this period of time competitors would probably achieve these things that would hurt them in the marketplace so there's some negative value to them being hurt in the marketplace by not having the leading products if that makes sense john so what we said was the the difference in paying cash up front versus doing the earnout is you know is lost revenues to them is competitive advantage we try to show them an economic equation that would happen to them if they didn't just do this deal now we said you're going to you're going to pay it's going to cost you more over the next few years to not acquire our products based on what will happen in the market and what we'll keep doing than the differential of just paying us versus doing the earnout eventually they bought the argument and said we better just buy this company that was a hard argument you, but you lost me i mean in the earnout example they would still have been buying your company. No, yet. we wouldn't have done the deal. I we said we're not okay. taking an earnout. I see. So I your see. choices are pay for the company or we're out of here. Okay. So you and didn't. And they said, okay. well, then go. And we said, okay, on the way out, we just want to show you the cost of your go decision. Here's the accounts we project we're going to take from you as a business because all these are up for bid and these you've been hit by companies that that you've owned traditionally that have been switching to us. You're losing competitors to us. So here's the cost of the losses you're going to have from us and the deal we might do with a competitor. So before you guys walk the deal, look at the cost of not closing this deal and that had an impact on them. And so the earnout conversation and and the potential the threat to walk away happened prior to signing the letter of intent, is that correct? Um no, 
It didn't. It, it the letter of intent didn't say didn't really say how they were going to pay us. Interesting. So you're you're into due diligence at this point. You're and then they came right. Then yeah. they came back and said, "Oh, by the way, you're going to get this on an earnout." And we said, "Wait, wait, wait." They intentionally didn't tell us that because it's getting the fish on the hook before you yank the hook and start reeling them in. God, this is beautiful. So again, we're hooked, listeners. This is such an important point when you're at Go the ahead. letter of intent stage. Um, this is where your opportunity to negotiate your terms, including whether or not there's an earnout. Once you get past that LOI, you're, you've now lost your some of your negotiating leverage. And, and in Jeff, in your case, the only negotiating leverage you had was I'm not going to go back and and uh, negotiate with Carlson or Thompson or, or Thomas Cook. We're just going to walk from the deal, and and that's that that puts you in a very yes. tough position. Right, because now I can't negotiate with them after signing that. And you're exactly right. If we had known then in the LOI stage, we would have started to discuss those payout terms way up front and at least left the door open. And we didn't. So we left a door closed behind us that we had to smash our way back through. So your point to your listeners is an excellent one. This story just it, it, it just gets better with time. So so as you approach the day of the wire transfer, the actual closing, I mean, describe that. Were you in some lawyer's office in Manhattan? I mean, where were you on the day that the, the deal <laughs> yes. actually went through? <laughs> we checked into, it's funny you ask that, because we checked into a hotel that we couldn't afford. Um, and we were in- <laughs> Well, 24 hours later, you were about to be able to afford it. Yes, okay. we were in, in the office of lawyers that we couldn't afford, but- we just felt like we were little and, you know, we, we felt like an insect and, you know, and, and the big beast was going to smash us because this was a big Fortune 500 company with its own army of lawyers and M&A and due diligence people. And they knew that we didn't know about this. They would constantly say things like, oh, well, you guys, you're not an M&A guy. This is how all deals go. And sometimes that wasn't true. They were smart enough with a straight face to say, well, that's just because you don't, you're not a professional. You don't know what mergers are like. And a few times I would walk away doubting myself. Well, maybe we just don't. Maybe deals are done like this. So that's why we had to pay high-end people at the other end who've negotiated with that firm. By the way, that helps to go find out someone else who has negotiated a deal against the firm that the acquirer is using. That's how we picked our firm. We said, who has closed a deal with them that is considered a good deal? Who's basically beat them in court? And somebody told us another firm. And so we went to that firm and even though they were expensive, somebody said, you're gonna be glad you did this because they know all the tricks of the acquirer. They know what they're gonna say. And, and when they walk in the room with you as your attorney, the other attorneys are going to say, well, crap, some of our tricks won't work because these guys know us too well. So that's why we spent the extra money. So where were you when you actually closed so the deal? So we did this in conference room at both law offices back and forth in Manhattan. Got it. And, and high-end conference rooms where, by the way, the food is really good in there until you find out that they were billing you for it. <laughs> <laughs> so the wire goes through and you, you've all of a sudden got this, this, uh, this, this, this wealth were there trophies that you bought, Jeff, or, or things that you did to sort of uh, put a, uh, an exclamation point on the transaction uh, in your life? I did, and it was stupid um, to say that in hindsight. By the way, I've got to tell you, John, a really fast, funny story. The day we finally agreed, we went home that night. We finally went back to the hotel, and the next morning was the signing, the closing. So I walked down the street in New York in the state of euphoria. I can't believe this all just happened. Um, and we're preparing, talking about media and press releases and, and stuff like that. Personally, I'm thinking about all the people on my list that I want to give some of the money to. 
right? It's more money I've ever made in my entire life combined. And I want to, there's people I want to take care of that weren't equity people. I just want to give them some of the money because I wouldn't be here without them. So I'm having the joy of thinking of that. But meanwhile, I walk down the street and I decide this is such a momentous occasion. I walk into a Mont Blanc shop and I buy a $300 pen. And I decide I would never be that wasteful in real life. I decide that I'm going to sign, I'm only going to use this pen once in my life. I'm going to sign this, you know, multi-million dollar acquisition deal with my $300 pen. And then I'm going to put the pen in a trophy case. Um, we got there the next morning and I have no idea where the damn pen went. <laughs> it's on the streets of New York. That's great. Brand new Mont Blanc must have fallen out of my coat pocket. So I signed with like a 20 cent Bic pen. <laughs> which I still have on my desk. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you, when you get back home, it's kind of surreal because it's kind of like winning the lottery uh, since we got this, you know, the upfront payout. One day you have nothing really, although we were, we were living well from our business, so I was never unhappy. But this is a lottery win. Suddenly everybody's got zeros in their bank account. Um, people that didn't have millions of dollars before do. And you go back home, and, and I will be honest, it was, in hindsight, it was influence of lots of other people. I'm not a material guy. And I'm not a thing guy, but everybody that knew the deal, all my friends were like, man, you should design a big mansion and you should buy a car. You should do all these things. So the bad part was I did go do that and it quickly found out it did not, it was not, you know, I literally remember saying one day, built a big giant house. My friends called it Chateau Hoffman. It looked like a castle. And then I was walking around in the empty rooms I've never been in one day and thinking, what on earth was I thinking? Because this not only did not give me a happiness quotient, it gave me a stress quotient. Now you have all these things, more money, more problems, things to be responsible for. So I learned pretty fast. I did go, I'm being honest, I did go out and buy stuff. I bought a Ferrari and other stuff. But I also realized shortly thereafter that this was not what I was working for. And this was not, it was a good lesson, right? That if all you're working for is things, and money, it's a pretty empty, then you get there and you say, now what? Because what, you know, it takes your incentive out. It turned out that being able to do good things in the society with your money, the shame in life isn't in making money, it's in not using it to help others. When I found out that my hard work and success could improve the quality of lives of lots of other people around the world, it changed everything. A great segue to tell us what you're doing now. So, I've been doing startups my whole life. Uh, that one we just talked about that was, was acquired with CTI. Uh, later, I was part of the founding team of Priceline.com, which uh, that exit was an IPO, but at the time, the third largest IPO in stock market in NASDAQ history. Um, so we were all very fortunate uh, to create value there as well. Um, after building and either selling or IPOing companies over a long period of time, I had made a commitment to giving back. I had been very, very blessed uh, through entrepreneurial and business owner success to live a lot of my dreams. And I, my pledge was to do whatever I could to help other people live their dreams, achieve their dreams. So in 2012, I, I kind of transitioned from a, a life of startups to a life of mentoring. I said that I'm going to give back by mentoring business owners and entrepreneurs all around the world. And so for the last, it was supposed to only be 2012, but John, I've been doing it for three and a half years. I'm, you know, uh, on the way now, uh, um, I just came back from Tunisia mentoring business owners and entrepreneurs there. And I'm on the way to Columbia down in South America next week to do the same thing. And, you know, I did it in Akron, Ohio yesterday. So I've spent all my time trying to share anything I can share to help today's business owners achieve the, the things we were fortunate enough to achieve. And where can people find out about your mentoring and, and find you specifically online? 
Um, I, I will tell you, my most active social media is LinkedIn. Um, I talk to a lot of people there. My Twitter handle is Speaker Jeff, uh, just because I'm on the road speaking a lot. But Twitter is Speaker Jeff. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, if you Google Jeff Hoffman Priceline, that's usually the one that people find me the fastest. Um, I also have a website uh, that's jeffhoffman.com. H-O-F-F-M-A-N.com. Yes. Jeff, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me today, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.